0: Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove.
1: Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is the science of metaphysics. My guest is Charles Upton, whose first two books of poetry, In Panic Grass in 1968 and Time Raid in 1969, were published by City Lights Books in San Francisco, known for publishing the works of the great beat poets. and At that era, even as a high school student, he was considered the youngest of the beatnik poets. He subsequently became engaged in metaphysics and the traditionalist movement and is the author of many books, including Folk Metaphysics, Mystical Meanings in Traditional Folk Songs and Spirituals, Cracks in the Great Wall, UFOs and Traditional Metaphysics, The Science of the Greater Jihad Essays in Principial. Psychology, the system of the Antichrist, truth and falsehood in postmodernism and the New Age, vectors of the counter initiation, the course and destiny of inverted spirituality, the alien disclosure deception the metaphysics of social engineering, and most recently, the way forward for perennialism after the antinomianism of Fritjof Schoen. Charles is based in Lexington, Kentucky, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Charles. It's a real pleasure to be with you once again.
0: Well, I'm glad to be here as well. So,
1: We'll be talking about the science of metaphysics, which is a very interesting topic. I know it's a term that you used, and uh, I realize you have a very deep background in metaphysics. And At the same time, in universities across the country, I'm pretty sure that the, the standard uh, way of addressing metaphysics is to say it cannot be a science because you can't test metaphysical ideas.
0: Uh, I would agree with that up to a point and then dispute it as well. Uh, but certainly, uh, Thomas Aquinas, for example, with scholastic philosophy, his scholastic philosophy, you read him and, you know, there's no way you will say metaphysics cannot be a science. It may, you, people may call it a pseudoscience, but it has all of all of the aspects of a science, you know. Um, and so that, that that means we have to define what a science is. But to begin with, metaphysics is a very uh, uh, misused words, as many words are nowadays. And um, you go to the metaphysical section of, of your bookstore and you'll see anything under the sun from you know, uh, anomalous events. In other words, we're, we're trying to base our idea of reality on anomalous events, which has got a problem with it. You know, you know the the exception the exception to the rule, or some crazy thing that has never happened before. That's what we go to to find out the norm for for, for reality. That's probably not the best place to go. You know, <laughs> but that's what we do nowadays. And also, you know, metaphysics is used to deter, to uh, denote you know any sort of uh, interest or, or, or understanding of the paranormal or whether it be magic or witchcraft or or UFOs or or you know any number of things are called metaphysics but like I say you you look at Thomas Aquinas and you say no metaphysics is a very highly systematic philosophy that that uh, uh, is tested uh, by being proved out in the moral and the contemplative life that's the experience experimental method that, that, that tests it. Mm-hmm. So, um, so anyway, uh, metaphysics, uh, so I was saying, what, what is a science? If metaphysics is a science, what is the definition of science? Well, I came up with something like it's a systematic way of knowing that, as you say, can be tested by a, an experimental method. It's got those two elements. You 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 look at at reality as having an actual a real structure. Now it's getting harder to do that all the time. I just read something where Neil deGrasse Tyson said, "Maybe we were created in in the basement of 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 some uh a building in a in a future in a future civilization that's immensely more advanced than us." Uh, and so we were created by some kid in the basement with his computer, and uh, and we're nothing but circus animals. Now, in, in a certain sense, that was tongue in cheek. But but this ideas like this are being taken seriously in in scientific in philosophical circles, which shows that, that that we're affected by a condition of mass insanity. I mean that that is simply mental illness and nothing else. You, we cannot have been created by a future civilization because we're here now. And if, if we are simply circus animals or, or, or computer simulations created by some superior race, that destroys humanity. There is no human dignity left. There's no self-respect left. And spirituality? Are you kidding? How can a computer image from the metaverse have a spiritual life. So obviously this is, this sweeps all value of the human race into the dustbin of history or into the dustbin of insanity. So, you know, this is, so let's return to, to something a little more sane and talk about a systematic way of knowing that has to do uh, with Uh, It's a support for the spiritual life, a way of understanding it, and and a way of of furthering our spiritual development. So anyway, uh, science at its best has to accept that there are actual natural laws, actual constants, that there there is is a real structure to reality. And there's a way of testing our theories about that to see if if they line up with, with our observations. That's what material or materialistic sciences. Now for metaphysical science, yes, it accepts there's a structure of uh, of reality. Uh that part of science is called ontology, which is the science of being, and it understands that reality is arranged in in a hierarchy. You know, and the hierarchy it's let's say it starts with the material or the terrestrial, and it goes to, to the subtle material or, or the energetic then it goes to the uh, psychic or the astral. Then it goes to the celestial or the angelic. Then it goes to the causal or the logos, you know, which, which is the face of absolute reality turned toward the cosmic manifestation turned, turned toward, you know, the rest of, of creation. And then it goes as far as, as, uh, the personal God who is pure being, uh, what the, um, Hindus called uh, Saguna Brahman, you know, God with attributes. And then the the apex of the hierarchy is beyond being, what the Hindus call Nirguna Brahman, uh, God or absolute reality without without attributes, the formless absolute. That's the ontological hierarchy. And then the other part of of metaphysics is epistemology. this, This is science of knowing, how we know things and how we can know the structure of reality how we can realize uh not just theoretically but but you know in in the core of our being you know the, the, our our relationship to and our place within this hierarchy of being and how we can realize higher and higher conceptions of things based upon higher levels of, of the hierarchy of being that's what metaphysical epi- epistemology is And it's essentially the the science of of contemplation, of spiritual practice. Yoga is an aspect of it, you are from one tradition, more than one tradition. And um, um, so it's, it's it's a way of knowing, epistemology is a way of knowing what is accepted to be real in ontology, which is the structure of being. So knowing and being come together in metaphysics. So what you have is a very systematic way of cultivating the spiritual life. Uh, and you need both both parts because you, you, can, you can come up with an idea of the structure of being. I mean, I, I, I'm listening to, uh, as, as we said before, you know, Jack Sarfati and his circle, who are talking about things which may actually be real. I, I have no idea because they're speaking in mathematical language, in the language of cutting edge physics. I don't know, understand any of the terminology. But they seem to know what they're talking about, even though they all disagree with each other. You know, they seem to know what they're talking about. And uh, but uh, I don't notice that they consider the kind of knowledge that they're, that they're seeking as a way of cultivating their character, as a way of purifying their uh, their consciousness from uh, uh, from egotism and from uh, various passions. So, so they, they don't think that they have to be a certain kind of person or have reached a certain kind of state before they can know what they know. They can know what they know, whatever state they're in. Their state doesn't matter. But because, you know, so th- th- that's true to a degree in, in, in the physical sciences. You know, i I mean, you, you can't say that, uh, that Einstein or, or, or uh, Stephen Hawking or someone, you know, has to have reached a level of moral Purification and contemplative understanding before they can know what they know. There may be some relationship to that. For example, you know, if 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 Einstein had been an alcoholic, you know, serious alcoholic, he probably would not have come up with the uh, special and general theories of relativity. So there's a certain degree, you know, uh, of, of of personal uh, development that's necessary, but not 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 a great degree, and but with metaphysics the, the development of your character and of your consciousness is entirely intimately intimately related to your in your ability to understand the objective nature of reality those those two you know always go together so what you have is, is a, um, a a systematic way of knowing with a, uh, an experimental method that can validate it an experimental method uh, is which would say this in Sufism, the science of the ahwal or, or the spiritual states, or the makamat, the spiritual stations, which are like more permanent versions of the spiritual states. Um, and uh, th- these these two are never are never found apart in metaphysics. So uh, th- that that's what make, makes metaphysics different from the kind of mysticism that is talked about by uh, I forget his first name Buck R M Buck. Who wrote the cosmic consciousness and uh, William James, who wrote the varieties of the religious experience, you know, talking about these very interesting experiences, some of them completely unexpected that people will have that they call mystical or, or, or their spirit, you know, experiences deep devotion or experiences of, 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 you know, seeing as Fritjof Schoen says, the metaphysical transparency of phenomena when looking at nature or, or, you know, any number or, or a sense of divine love or a sense of, of profound insight. Sometimes these things just come out of the blue. And, uh, it's very interesting to, to hear the stories of them. But, uh, in metaphysics or or, 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 in a, uh, what you would call, what some people would call an esoteric spiritual path. Esoteric is one of those fraught words, but, you know, uh, you know, it, 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 which is often an initiatory path in some way or another. Um, in, in any way, a systematic path. Uh, you know, that, that's, that's different. And, and maybe, maybe you will not suddenly have the big mystical experience. There are people who have experiences like that and then never have it again, but they spend the rest of their lives trying, trying to come up with a theory of what happened to them. And they write books and they try to think of what, what was that, you know? Whereas, um, the metaphysical path is perhaps a bit more sober than that, although it has its drunken moments, but you know the the, the, the Sufi path is, is, is a path of lifelong development and if if you know the day you had the big mystical experience you know actually never happens in the way that you imagine it might, still you you're step by step drawing closer to absolute truth. so that's what I would say about metaphysics as a science.
1: I think you're referring to a particular style of metaphysics, if I understand you correctly. It could be the Sufi path. It could be the path of Zen Buddhism. It could be the path of yoga. It could be the path of Christian contemplation. Each time it's, it's culturally unique. It's embodied within a particular cultural form, but at least in in the most evolved versions of each of those paths, what you're saying is there, there's a very systematic roadmap for how one ascends to different levels of consciousness and the various obstacles along the way. There's a roadmap. Also, on the other hand, we can't be too
0: schematic about. It. I mean, there there is an extreme which perhaps you can see in in uh, Masonic initiations where. Here are the 33, 33, degrees and each one has a particular, you know, a particular name and a particular handshake or whatever, you know, and, 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 and it's all so systematic, you know, or, or, uh, and I don't know what, the, what the, the path of Kabbalah is like in, in, in practical terms, but I look at the tree of life and imagine that, you know, one of the ways of dealing with it is climbing the, 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 uh, Rungs of, of, the tree of life from Sephirah, sephira to Sephirah till you get to find you know. And, and I look at that and I say, well, that, that's, that's per, a profound system. Perhaps it's a little bit over, over systematic, but I don't know that it may not be. And of course, when you talk about Zen, Zen says to hell with metaphysics, you know, like, you know, I remember Houston Smith talked about going to, uh, Japan once, you know, when he went there to study Zen with, I forget who, but with a recognized Zen master. He said he was over there at the same time Gary Snyder was studying with the same master. you're interesting. And, uh, you know, he, he, uh, he asks a question or the Zen master asks him a question or something. He responds. And then Houston tells the story and the Zen master looks at him aghast and says, you have the philosopher disease. <laughs> you know, I mean, and and this is because certainly all of those systems realize that you go beyond conceptual thought, you know, in 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 the highest reaches of, of realization. The thing is, some of the systems use conceptual thought to the hilt, and others avoid it like the plague, particularly Zen. So you know, it's uh, metaphysics. Uh, it, it, it's always. Uh, Axiomatic that the, that the Buddha did away with metaphysics. He he was just practical. He says do do this and you will learn to overcome suffering, or at least that's the sort of Theravadan approach. Mm-hmm. But then, of course, later on, and particularly in in, in Mahayana and particularly in, in Tibetan Buddhism and Vajrayana, boy, do you get metaphysics. You know, it all comes back. So so we can't do with without it ultimately, but. I mean, even Zen is, is is a way of going beyond a very systematic I mean, understanding of Buddhist metaphysics. You know, there are Buddhist principles, and and you know, people write long sutras on the various principles, and then Zen comes along and throws all the sutras into the fire and say, "That's crap. If you see the Buddha, kill him." You know, so there's there there are always these two aspects of metaphysics. It's it, it's a two edged sword.
1: Well, and I imagine the Sufi path, which is your path, recognizes these two different pulls.
0: Definitely. I mean, if anybody is interested, if anybody is really interested, there's a 15-volume set of books produced by my first uh, Sufi sheikh, uh, Dr. Chavad Nurbach. It's called uh, um, Sufi Symbolism. You know, it's essentially an encyclopedia of of uh, Sufi symbolism. And what it is, in a large, to a large degree, I mean, based, he, he, he has particular themes or particular terms. And then he gets what, what all of the Sufis throughout history said about the, that term, you know, and, and you look at this and you say, this is so complicated. There are so many different spiritual states and ways of talking about spiritual states and stations, and there so many different uh, uh, ways of talking about the structure of reality. You know, the ontological structure of things, and and. Obviously, there's a commonality because you you can get one one term about a particular level of being or or manifestation of God or one term about a particular spiritual state or or spiritual attainment on the path. And then you have 10 different Sufis from all over the world, uh, you know, from many different places and times, what they said about that term. So obviously, there's a commonality in this. But if you look at this and you say, anybody who, who, who thinks they can systematically study this is out of their mind. It's too much. And what I finally came to the conclusion of is, is it's, the, it's there to show you that it's too much. It's there to show you that, you know, if you look at this uh, profusion of, of, of Sufi ontology, epistemology, metaphysics, and poetry and everything else, you'll say, this is, this is not a, a system to be studied. This is a way of realizing that God in every instant is, is doing, as it says in the Quran, every day he, he is, you know, he pursues, you know, some new action, which is like saying every, every moment is a new manifestation of God, never before, that never happened before and will never happen again. Every moment is unique. And, you know, if, if, if you could look at this profusion of, of terminology and, uh, about spiritual states and, and levels of reality in that manner, then, then I can be liberated and say, I can never figure this out. But, you know, uh, look what it's saying. You know, I, I mean, every, every moment is new. Every, every moment is a, is a new vision of eternal realities, but never the same way twice. You know, so that's sort of what Sufism, what Sufi metaphysics is like. The, the greatest Sufi metaphysician, of course, is Ibn al-Arabi. If you want to try to figure out Sufi metaphysics, he's got a huge book of many volumes called the Futuhat al-Makiyah, in which, you know, he was at Mecca and the Prophet came to him in a vision, in a vision and, and said, I'll dictate you this book, write it. And so, you know, this Sufi's got, they can write so fast. You know, they could just produce and produce and produce, you know. And it's interesting to listen, for example, to Rumi. Rumi is writing these magnificent poetry, and and, and, and then and he'll get to a place and says, enough, enough speech. Now, now silence, now silence. And the next minute there he is talking away again about something else. So anyway, the, metaphysics is helpful,
1: but... You know, God is beyond all that. It's worth taking a moment to pause and reflect on everything you've already said, because if we're, we're talking about metaphysics as a science, and at the same time you're basically saying that it can only take you so far. There's a point at which you're on your own.
0: Well, you're, and and you're on your own, also means you, you realize God is the one who's, who's leading and, and, and doing, he's the one who produces the states. He's the one who gives you insight into the structure of reality. So you, you can't, I mean, people think if they have a sophisticated map of reality, then they can operate it. Now I see how to get there. I see how to get reality. And there's, there's 173 levels. And I see, and each one is perfectly described. And like, uh, who is it? Uh, Sad Maidan is the name of a famous book by Ansari, where, where, where he talks about spiritual st- hundred spiritual stations, you know, and one leads to the other. And you would think, well, okay, it's, it'll take a long time. I got a hundred stations here, a hundred steps, and I can do it, you know. And no, you can't. <laughs> he's just he's just saying, you know, God's resources are vast. You know and you don't know what he's going to do next and and uh it's so so you you're always going beyond the systematic view of reality but it always comes back and when it comes back if you've had a real um encounter with the divine you'll see more in the systematic view mm-hmm. but then you have to go beyond it again because it, otherwise it will trap you you can you cannot operate metaphysics in order to get there
1: well, if we're to compare your description of metaphysics as a description of a spiritual path and as a guide for for seekers with the academic point of view, one of the big distinctions, as far as I can tell, is, is that there's no discussion of God in academic metaphysics these days. It has become, in effect, disenchanted.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, metaphysics is a word in, in academia that's simply used for the most fundamental ideas, you know, or assumptions of any way of looking at, at reality on any level. You know, what, what the, the the metaphysics of, you know, what, what, what is, what is this sociologist's metaphysic? In other words, what what does he accept as axiomatic that, that he's looking at everything through that, but, but he, that, to him, that's
1: just the truth. You know, that's, that's, what the word and and typically in in real life we're talking about materialism that's a metaphysical view that is widely held yes
0: right in other words that that that's that's a fundamental assumption that that uh you know some well-informed religious believers will say it takes an awful lot of faith to believe in that because you can't prove it you know Mm -hmm. uh is a, is a very common critique of, of uh, materialism, but yeah, it's it's a, a basic view that, that nobody questions uh, in a particular world, and uh, that's that's not traditional. We call this traditional metaphysics because that, that would make the distinction uh, between what I am saying and, and what's happening in academia largely these days.
1: Well, I get the impression that the the traditional metaphysics begins with some sense of uh, the absolute, the supreme whatever, the supreme being or the supreme consciousness. And everything unfolds from that in in a very logical fashion.
0: Yeah, definitely. Logical, maybe not. I mean it's logical enough for you to see that there must be a logic in it. You know, doesn't mean you can necessarily see, you know, explicitly, you know, all, all the details of this logical development, but yes, it's like that, that, that's a very good perception, uh, Jeffrey, because it's, it's everything does, um, you know, does manifest or descend the ontological hierarchy from the absolute. It's like, if there is an absolute reality, it implies somehow mysteriously everything else, including the most minute, you know, detail of the natural world and, and, and why the chromosomes are as they are and, and why the quantum world is as it is are all somehow implied by the fact that there's an absolute reality. You think the absolute reality is just absolute, you know, what, that there's nothing there's nothing, there's no relativity and there's no partiality in it. It's just, it's just the one thing that is, you know, as, as, uh, they say in scholastic philosophy, God is simple. You know, uh, I remember in James Joyce's, uh, you know, great book, Ulysses, you know, he, he, there's, there's Stephen Daedalus is, is sort of the, uh, you know, is the Catholic, you know, student of scholastic philosophy who's knocking about with all these low life characters. One of whom is, is, uh, is Leopold Bloom, who's this Jewish guy, you know, who's a secular Jewish guy, you know. And it's 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 hilarious if you understand what what, what it's about. It. And I think they're at a whorehouse or something, and Stephen Gael is saying, Well you see, God is God is uh is simple, which according to the scholastics means he has no parts, which is exactly what uh Muslims say. God is Al Ahad the one, he has no parts. You know, and then Bloom says, "Well, I wouldn't say simple exactly, which means, you know, Bloom thinks that simple means stupid, right? Well, it's not not really stupid. He's just maybe a little distracted sometimes. You know, it's a hilarious metaphysical humor, which, you. But anyway, I I digress.
1: Well, if if we start with the idea of, I I like to use the term the ground of being. Nothing could exist if if there wasn't a a source a ground of being for everything and and somehow it seems to me that we as mortal beings partake of of that ground of being and that ground of being is infinite and eternal and it's somehow part of us
0: yes and um i mean every metaphysical system will say something similar every every you know uh, mystical core of every one of the world's religions will say something similar. So ground of being is, is, you know, un, ungrund. That's, that's, that will do. And so, but if there's a ground of being, now, now where does this personal God come from? The personal God seems very anthropomorphic, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but what's interesting is, is I'm here saying there must be a ground of being to me. You know, what's my ground? What is my source? And then you turned around saying, well, that, that source is manifesting your personhood. So that question can be asked. So that's the way in which the personal God proceeds from the ground of being, which is, which is also beyond being, because you can't even limit it to saying, well, it is, although it might not exist but happens to exist therefore it has being it's beyond that it just you know it's it uh, that's why it's called beyond being so out of that proceeds you know personhood and uh, the personal god is the personal god because we are persons and you know if our personhood is deeper and realer to us than the reality of of insentient objects like tables and chairs or even stars. You know, there's something more to us than, you know, various natural objects or man-made objects that have no consciousness. So, you know, it's understandable that that when we turn to contemplate the ground of being, at one point, it will present a personal face to us because that's the source of our personhood. If there was not personhood in it, we wouldn't be persons. So that's the personal God. And yet... God is not a person like us that, that that we can you know limit and you know to to an address and a name and 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 various characteristics you know he's he's obviously also beyond all of that so that's where you get to the ground of being and the relationship between the ground of being and the manifestation of the personal God you could say well that's just just a a, a metaphor or a symbol for the ground of being well it is it's a symbol but it's, some symbols have more reality than we do. You know, a symbol, what is a symbol? Uh, you know, a, a, a symbol is, is is supercharged with reality if it's a real symbol. And so, you know, it's understandable that, that at one point, you know, if, if a personal God appears, he is greater than us. He sees God Almighty in heaven, you know, and yet he himself is proceeding out of a
1: deeper mystery. I think if you study the lives, for example, of the saints, You're dealing with individuals who feel that they have been guided and maybe even have have surrendered to this influence of a a personal God in in a way that manifests on the planet concrete things. I'm thinking of Joan of Arc, for example, a teenage girl who led armies into battle, uh, into victorious battle, because she felt inspired by God. At the same time, many people believe themselves to have been inspired by God, and it leads to nothing but folly,
0: yeah or, or or criminal behavior, you know I mean, the Holy Spirit told me to kill the little girl because she was the Antichrist or something like this, yeah, you know so well, yeah, <laughs> you know everything has has got its counterfeit. The ego counterfeits that's another that, that brings in the question of the ego. The ego counterfeits um reality. And um the, the the ego can have its own version of all the things uh that we talk about in metaphysics. And that that's that's sort of the uh the kingdom of Lucifer. You remember Lucifer is the light bearer. Luc- Lucifer um is the idea that the ego, you know, first develops and, and and then falls from a very high station of reality, you know. Um, so, you know, the the, uh, the Luciferian idea of beyond being is, is is an empty, hollow, soulless void, you know. That, uh, that, that, that That's sort of what G.K. Chesterton thought that ideas like that were the void beyond being ooh, that's the, that's 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 the dark dehumanized stuff that happens in east of the mediterranean somewhere in asia you know he was he had that idea um you know and it, whereas what beyond being is in a certain sense is just saying whatever forms we see and and we experience as part of the universe and as ourselves um are not limited to our understanding of them they they go on and on and on beyond anything we can know and that, that that's what a, that's what a person is a person is not just my idea of who he is plus his idea of who he is a person is much more than that beyond any idea he has beyond any idea i have and if i realize that i am respecting and responding to and contemplating his personhood and personhood itself through that person mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know so but you know then uh, you, you want to talk about the alienated the, e- the egos idea of the personal God well that, that that's what uh, William Blake called nobo daddy you know the the big the big unknown you know mysterious father in the sky you know <laughs> nobo daddy uh, yeah and people can have a very alienated idea of God you know there's a there's a powerful big old bastard up there that, you know, we, we got to follow what he says or, 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 or we're in trouble. And, you know, if, if we can get on his side, you know, maybe he'll give us a little power and people have to follow us for a change. You know, that's the ego's, you know, uh, uh, counterfeit and, and perversion of the idea of the personal God. Every one of those levels has a, perver- has a perversion, you know, and that's the ego that does the perverting.
1: I am under the impression that in Sufism and in many many other spiritual paths, probably all of them, there there is a role for the teacher or or, or the guru to help the aspirant distinguish from their their ego needs from what they believe is coming from a higher source.
0: Well, yeah, that that's that's pretty universal in um, systematic metaphysics or traditional metaphysics. I mean. In, in Sufism, you have, you know, the sheikh is a necessity. Now, this is hard for me to say because, you know, our, our, our sheikh in our little silsila, our little lineage, uh, came to a bad end. And those of us who, who did not want, want to follow him to hell, uh, ended up just meeting without a sheikh. And, and and, you know, it, it, we, we, we keep, we keep the home fires burning. Maybe God will send another shake, But, you know, what, whatever the shake does, you know, if, if the shake falls, that doesn't mean you have rejected it. What, you know, because the reason you need a shake is first, um, if the truth does not appear in full human form, then it cannot be transmitted to your full humanity. It's just an idea. It be a very inspiring idea, but it's not complete. You know, and th- this is in, in Christianity the idea of the in- the incarnation. You know, I mean, I mean, people heretics would come along later and say, "Well, Jesus was just oh. a, an apparition," like the Docetists, and the, there was great struggle against that, cause saying, "No, if if he hadn't come in complete human form, then he could not save our complete humanity." You know, so you need the human, and and it just just on the level of, uh, <laughs> like when, when I was a Catholic. You know, you go to confession and you confess your sins. You know, who wants to confess your sins to some priest, you know, that, that he knows, probably knows who you are and you know who, who he is. And next time you see him, he's going to cock his eyebrow at you. And, you know, you'll, you'll feel like you feel horrible because you told him all your shameful secrets, you know. But the thing is, uh, if you're not willing to confess to a human being, are you really confessing? You can invent an image of God in your mind and says, God, you know, please Please forgive me. I'm sorry for doing this and that. But you don't feel the shame that you feel if you were saying that to another human being. So, are you really are you really repenting, or or is it just a fantasy? You know. So that that's the value of of, of the human being in in that context. So yeah, there Denise and in you know there if there's the, the roshi in, in Zen and and there's the, the guru in Hinduism and. There's the Starets or the Geron in Eastern Orthodox Christianity, and it's all the same figure, um, because that, that, that that's what that's what makes it real. And and it's difficult because then what do you do when you see that this guy who's who is necessary and who's bringing you the tradition in embodied form and who makes it real for you, so he can really transmit it to you? Then you look and you say, he's got some problems himself. He's not perfect. And then you say, Oh my God, is that, is it, that's just my ego saying that? No, no, you know, well, <laughs> that's what, that's one of the difficulties and, and actually one of the useful difficulties of having a spiritual master, you know, struggling over those questions, which you can't, you, you can't avoid, but, but you, you don't take the simple way out and say, well, I, I, I saw him do something that, that I, I, I thought was uh, wrong. And so I'm out of here. People do that too much. You, see, you know, I think you know. I thought he was God, but now I know he was the devil. You know, and I am out of here. And and then they go to another guru that now is God, and and he turns out to be the devil too. And finally, some of those people just end up to be atheists. They, they get too bitter. You know. So it's a mysterious thing. You you have to accept that this master is the presence of God for you, and also that he's got a bunch of human foibles just like you. That is, that's the hot seat <laughs> in the master system, you know.
1: Well, I understand that one of the largest, or I should say, fastest growing segments of society today are people who consider themselves spiritual but not religious, and they—they're not joiners of Sufism or, or any other particular religion, but they—they they watch this. YouTube channel for example and they're interested in, in gleaning what, what they can and I'm under the impression that the from a point the traditionalist point of view more or less frowns on that
0: yeah it's it's, it's a limited point of view I mean one of the first people who I remember said that was uh, Monica Lewinsky you know <laughs> she made a point of saying I'm spiritual not religious so um, but um I don't blame people after the alienated experiences they've had with religion for, for taking that route. I don't think it's the best route, but that doesn't mean that that, that, that following, you know, uh strictly following a, a religious tradition and looking for, for a master in that tradition is gonna be easy. It could it could be one of the hardest things you've ever done. And and uh, and and there's no these days in particular that there's no guarantee that that it will work out the way you expect it but i think for me that's a way of taking the spiritual life seriously mm-hmm. on the other hand how, how can i fault somebody who who's been had terrible experiences with with religion for saying you know i had for example a near-death experience and i went and i found that God loved me, even if I wasn't a you know a perfect Catholic or a perfect Hindu or a perfect something. He just loved me because He loves everyone, you know. And and you know that's that that can be a wonderful liberation. On the other hand, possibly it can lead to a kind of you know presumption and 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 um irresponsibility in the spiritual life. I don't know, but I don't, I don't blame. I mean, there are people. How many people come out of near death experiences? and say, I saw there was no judgment, you know? And I personally, listening to to those experiences, I I say, well, I saw a judgment there. (laughs) You know, you went through a hard life review and you you had to feel all the pain that you'd caused other people. That's kind of a judgment. But they come back and say, Lord, there's no judgment. Well, what it is, is they believed, they were through their, their religious training, that God hated them. And, you know, if they weren't perfect, he hated you, and of course nobody's perfect. You know, no idea that Jesus is the friend of sinners. You don't know, no. You know, if you're not if if you're not, you know, meeting the mark, God hates you and he will send you to hell, and that's what they believe. Maybe that's why they have the near death experience, to get that idea out of their heads. You know, so I can't I cannot fault anybody for, for for being spiritual, not religious. I just don't think it's the best way if you're going to take the spiritual life seriously. That's all I can say, and everybody's different, so I, I can't I can't speak for anybody else.
1: Do you think that the various metaphysical approaches uh, that we've been talking about, let's take Sufism, which you're deeply steeped in, but you've also referred many times now to the scholastic philosophy of Thomas Aquinas? Are are they? I use the word isomorphic with each other. Are are they? sympathetic to each other
0: you could say sympathetic but no 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 system can be superimposed on another uh which is interesting because every every religious revelation and, and every philosophical school i mean they have their own approach and it's necessary that they should be multiple because only god is one and so all the approaches to god whether they be of different traditions or of different philosophical or metaphysical or mystical schools within those traditions or of you know separate individuals with their own unique spiritual destiny those have to be multiple because uh because only god is one and 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 as we talk about the absolute implies everything else the unity of god implies the multiplicity of his manifestation somehow i don't know how you can prove that or, or or make that logical, but that's what I see, you know. And since God is the unique, there is none like him. You know, as it says in, in the Quran, uh, he neither begets nor is begotten, and there's nothing to which he can, can be compared. And because he is the unique, everything in his creation or in his manifestation is also unique. Each is unique. Because each partakes of or 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 has its source in God, who is the unique. So, but, but as you get closer, climbing the ontological hierarchy to the higher and higher levels, the different systems get closer to each other. They get more similar. Till finally, when you get to, you know, it's like you can say the Hindus talk about uh, Nirguna Brahman and Saguna Brahman. You know, the absolute without attributes, the absolute with attributes. Well, that's just like. Um, you know Meister Eckhart t- t- talking about Godhead and God, or it's like a, like like the uh, um, the the Kabbalists, you know, talking about you know Ein Sof, and then you know the Sephiroth of the Tree of Life, you know, beneath that. And you you could look at every every tradition, and they and when you get to that level, close to the absolute, you have very similar formulations. But as soon as you start getting down farther, it really changes. And uh, and that's as it should be. I mean, that's what the traditionalist perennialists always say, that the multiplicity of, of um, religious traditions and manifestations is providential because we're all different. We have all different needs, particularly in these times. You're not generally born into a religion anymore. You've got a smorgasbord of choices, and you're going to get attracted to one, basic Basically, because that's closest to your character. And so that's what you need. And, you know, thank God for that. They don't just flat out 100% contradict each other, except they certainly appear to, you know, Jesus Jesus is God, say the Christians. You know, God has no son and he does not beget, you know, say the Muslims. And at one point, you're going to have to admit there's not going to be
1: a unity of minds on that point in fact there are often wars as as a result of these metaphysical differences
0: yeah and and it's interesting because that reminds me of something uh, ibn al-arabi said he says there is war between the names of god each name of god is 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 another you know it is is on one hand one of god's inherent attributes which is called the attribute and and when, and, the, and on the other hand it's a name which has to do with a perspective on god for, for you know uh, uh, by one or more of his creatures you know and and there's always going to be conflict or or, or dissonance between those because only god is one you know and then and, and this world is not a world of unity it's not a world to, to which we can bring peace you know ultimately because this world is is made of 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 uh Dichotomies, polarities, and contradictions—that's what it is. So we're here in order to wrestle with this stuff and deal with it, and 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 spiritually grow uh, th- through that wrestling match.
1: Well, I've always had this idea because we all share the ground of being that it's appropriate to love everything and everyone all the time. And I hear from people that this is definitely in contradiction to traditionalist metaphysics that uh, we're supposed to fight evil we're supposed to uh, be antagonistic to things that are negative we're not supposed to love them well i mean and that's one of the the essential
0: contradictions and 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 like because both are true i mean you you, you have to you know for, for example i you know uh I, i've got a uh, you know there, there, there's a uh, my wife's stepfather, who uh really tried to to screw us and screw the family out of you know out of her mother's inheritance and, and did some things that i think uh, if if they could ever be proved against him, which they never will be able to uh he'd be in state prison right now. he was a bad news and uh uh and yet I look you know at least b- because I was able to prevent him from stealing the estate I felt you know, I could sort of relax. And now I'm looking back and say, you know, I sort of have, you know, a soft sp- spot of my heart for that guy, you know, because I could see aspects of of his, of his, you know, uh, sort of, you know, twisted low life character, which was very endearing, you know what I mean? So, I mean, I don't know. That's, but, but yeah, I mean, w- one has to love every, everyone and everything because, um, because everything is a manifestation of God. But let's put it, you know, can you love a demon? Should you love a demon? Well, um put it this way. If you love a demon, he'll hate you for it. Maybe his hell, and this is what the Eastern Orthodox say about people in hell. Hell is composed of the love of God as experienced by people who can't stand the love of God. So, There's love, but then there's also definitely fighting evil, and and at one point, it's the love itself that fights the evil, you know, because evil hates love. And and if if you love your enemies, as Jesus said, love your enemies, do good to those who harm you, you'll pour coals of fire on their head. So, there, in one phrase, is is the union between fighting evil and, and loving everyone.
1: There you have it. You pour coals of fire upon their heads.
0: Yes, you know, by loving your enemies because they'll hate it. You know, I love you. you no, know, fuck you. Get away you. I don't want your love. You know, and that's yes. I mean, think of that. You—that's that, the best uh, one-line answer to, to 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 the dichotomy you posed right there.
1: Well, now that seems like a what can I call it? A a, a time-tested metaphysical principle. Yeah, you know. Sometimes, though, I, I tend to say, "Well, see, that, that proves Jesus
0: in, invented uh, passive aggression." <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, but no, it's a lot more than that. You know, because because if you you know, it's not good to carry around hate. You know, you 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 if you love God, you 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 love everything ultimately that He does, and and if He's doing everything, some of those things are pretty horrendous in in, in their aspect. But what's, what's the love that, that is being manifest even through many, many veils and much darkness, you know, in, in, in these events that we see as purely evil. This, there is, love is the origin of everything. And, but, but it's, it's, it's formidable to say that. And, you know, so many people get hung up at that point, you know, you, you, you mean God is doing all this. God did, you know, the Holocaust, you know, and then to hell with God. A lot of Jews have said exactly that, and it's understandable. Yeah. but Because this is, this is a deep mystery. I mean, William Blake said, in The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, uh, um, let's see, the howling of, the roaring of lions, the howling of wolves, the raging of the stormy sea, and the destructive sword are portions of eternity too great for the eye of man. You know, the majesty of God, you know, how all of this could, could, could be, you know, a manifestation of absolute truth and love is more than we, we can in, in almost every instance that, that can encompass, you know. And so I, I wouldn't I wouldn't insist that anybody believe that because it's 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 too much. <laughs> you know, I mean, after, Shiva, after all, is God. Kali is God, you know, oh. <laughs>
1: The destructive nature of God is something beyond human comprehension.
0: Yeah, yeah, well, that's what Blake says, and I, I think there's something to that.
1: And and there is a sense in which all of this destructiveness is ultimately motivated by incredible love, and uh, that seems beyond contemplation.
0: Yeah, it's and and of course, you know, people with um, who have the near death experiences, they often claim. You know, uh, you know, I, 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 I left my body and I saw I was still me and, and I, and I went through the tunnel and I came into the presence of the light and I saw it was God. And I said, what's the idea? <laughs> what are you up to? You know, and then God says, well, of course, well it's simply blah, blah, blah. And, 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 and he, he tells them exactly the answer to, to this enigma that we're talking about. And they say, of course, obvious, obvious. How could I've ever forgotten that? You know, well, that's great. And I'll, and when I come, you know, now it's time to go back to your body. Okay. Well, I'll remember that. But they never do. They remember a little bit, but you get here in this world and that
1: becomes once again a total enigma. And it's, it strikes me when we compare traditionalist or spiritual metaphysics with academic metaphysics, the, the question of love and compassion or or the nature of evil itself at a metaphysical level never come up at all. Those topics are excluded, to the best of my knowledge.
0: Yeah, well, I just wish the academics would come up for, for, with, with another word for what they're doing, you know. One of the problems with, um, Western philosophy is, you know, it, it comes from the Platonic tradition, which in, includes Aristotle as well. And, you know, and, and also is, is even related to the pre-Socratics who, who, you know, it's a single stream. And what some of the writers that I, I respect, uh, there's one girl, Sarah Rapp. I think he's, she's with the, uh, University of Michigan, I could be wrong, and then there was a traditionalist writer, uh, uh, Algis Uzdavinis, a uh, Lithu- Lithuanian, and uh, Rodney Blackhurst, another traditionalist from uh, uh, um, Bendigo, what's uh, Latrobe University in Australia. And they're talking about the Platonic tradition wasn't just you know Plato and his dialogues. People sitting around trying to think about philosophical subjects. You know, and, and, and at, at, after dinner, you know, drinking wine. Um, th- th- that there was a real spiritual path and a real spiritual method. You can see that surfacing a little bit later in, in the, the Neoplatonics, like Iamblichus. You know, I mean, one of the things was was invoking a god. You know, and you think, well. This is just like ceremonial magic. This is Aleister Crowley kind of stuff. You invoke the god, you know. Well, they understood that intellectually. You invoke a god, recognizing the god is a a metaphysical principle or an intellectual principle, and so in invoking the god, you're invoking the insight that 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 is symbolized by that god. And the Neoplatonics understood that. And and there's a whole. <clears throat> methodology of spiritual practice and meditation and invocation of theurgy that we don't really know too much about, but we know that it was there. But all of that just since since it was not transmitted, a lot of it was was esoterically, you know, hidden. You know, it's like like very few people. If anybody ever told the mysteries of the the mystery schools, Eleusis, we know a little something about it, but you know, they really. Kept their mouths shut and so we don't know what went on and it's a similar with the platonic tradition um, so all all that the west inherited were the writings which are only one half if not less of the entire tradition mm-hmm. so so philosophy become a mental thing this is when i sit here and figure try to figure out existence you know and then you get these these Complex systems like Kant's, you know, Critique of Pure Reason, and I'm sitting here, I'm, you know, I just sat here. If I sit here long enough and think enough and read enough books, I'll be able to figure this out because I'm a philosopher, you know, and that, that isn't what, that isn't what the way metaphysics was pursued by the Greeks. Whereas when you get to the kind of spirituality that you see in the Philokalia in, in Eastern Orthodoxy or in uh, scholastic philosophy, in, in the Western Church, it's entirely connected with a sacramental order of, of theurgy and, and, and the invocation of, of divine grace, and with with a, a, a tradition of contemplation, meditation. It's all, it, you know, it's it, it's reintegrated again, but a lot of it just went off into the universities and became. Uh, uh, that's why people talk about ivory tower. You know, metaphysic, metaphysic, metaphysicians, intellectuals just spinning their wheels because they don't have the contemplative part of it. So, and this is finally what happened to metaphysics. They should think of another word for it.
1: Well, Charles Upton, this has been once again a very inspiring and enlightening conversation. I uh, really enjoy talking to you, and I know we have still yet-to-do interview in which you're going to recite more of your poetry.
0: Well, yeah, that will come, I hope. Uh, w- what I need to do now, uh, because of money, is I need to advertise some books. And if if there are two of my books which are sort of just about metaphysics, not metaphysics in a particular application.
1: Findings in Metaphysics, Path,
0: and Lore yeah findings in metaphysics path and lore that's one of them. The other one
1: is this is an early, a little slightly earlier one knowings in the arts of metaphysics, cosmology, and the spiritual path
0: yeah so th- th- these are excursions in into metaphysics and um you know I hope they will reward people want to know a little bit more about what I was talking about. And you know, you can go over it and read it again, and, and say, "I didn't get that," and then try to try to get it the next time.
1: <laughs> well, I'm glad you brought those books up because I mentioned many of your books in the pre-recorded introduction, but I didn't include those, and I'll make a point of uh, including them in future conversations that we have.
0: Yeah, and, and you know, and, and almost all of my books have. They're taking off from metaphysics in different directions. My UFO book, you know, uh, the alien disclosure deception relies upon metaphysics to look at what the UFO phenomenon is. And then there's another one that relies on metaphysics to look at the inner meanings of of, uh, traditional folk songs, you know, which is called um, folk metaphysics. And, you know, I I take metaphysics and I imply it because you, you can apply it to so many different things, you know, to, to, to give a particular perspective on many different things. It's not a self-enclosed system. It, it, it's, it's a way of looking at reality. Well,
1: you've written, what, over 20 books at this point? Maybe 23. I mm-hmm. forget. We've hardly uh, begun to cover them, so I'm looking forward to many more interviews with you. Glad to do it. So, Charles, thank you so much for being with me today. Glad to be here,
0: and you know, um, I am available. That's this is I'm all on call at this point.
1: This is what I do. That's great, and I think our viewers will probably be interested in knowing that you're also working on an autobiography, which I'm looking forward to reading. It's personal history.
0: Oh, you know, and, and I, I have to, in order to prevent it from being ponderous, you know, and filled with heavy ideas, I, I have to be entertaining, which I can do, you know, but I, you know, I I bring it, bring my stand up comic, you know, self out and I bring out a (laughs) few other things. And, and, and and I have to just, you know, I, I knew Houston Smith. I knew Ellen Gins. I knew, you know, and, 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 uh, which is be, will be interesting to people. I, I've got an interesting, interesting to me as I'm just writing it up view of what the Beat generation and the poetry scene that came from them were in those days in San
1: Francisco. A very seminal uh, period of American cultural history that you were part of. Yeah. I mean, everything was
0: thrown at us in about four years, every conceivable view of anything, you know, I mean, with, with the help of LSD and, you know, and, I guess everything I've been doing since metaphysics and, uh, you know, interest in poetry and mythopoesis and metaphysical exegesis of mythic literature and, uh, you know, peace activism as well. All of the, those things that, that have made up my life were just proposed to everybody in about four years. You can do this or this or this. Remember that song by uh, um by the Doors, Jim Morrison, "The Crystal Ship is Being Filled." You know, it's like all the conceivable experiences that, that you could possibly have are all there at once, and then usually that just burns a lot of people out. But some people caught some of them and said, "Well, let's go with those."
1: Well, that's something you and I have in common. We're, we've been on very different paths, but I think uh, a lot of it emerged from that very inspiring time in the '60s and, and '70s, and the little town of San Rafael where we both lived. Little town of
0: San Rafael. I wonder how it's doing now. I see it in my mind. Well, I'm, I'm writing about San Rafael as well. In you know, in, in the in the olden days.
1: Well what a pleasure to talk to you again, Charles. Thank you again so much for being with me. Yeah, glad glad to do it. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us.